We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday listen to Conversation with Unc hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, Daniel, I've got an idea for a new movie genre. Ooh, I'm excited and a little terrified. Well, you should be, because first of all, you've got aliens in this movie. Okay, I'm loving it so far. Okay, and now you add a romance connection and you get (laughs) an alien (laughs) rom-com. You know, you might have something there. Miscommunication is the basis for basically every rom-com. Yeah, and can you imagine the meet-cute, giant spaceships, (laughs) first looks, love at first landing. It gives the phrase first contact a whole new spin. (laughs) That might be inappropriate, Daniel. (laughs) It'll be PG, I'm sure. Hi, I'm Jorge. I'm a cartoonist and the creator of PhD Comics. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and I want to have some relationship with aliens, but maybe not that kind of relationship. Just the intellectual kind, right? Yeah, I want a platonic conversation with the aliens. (laughs) You don't want to be friends with them. You just want to be like (laughs) colleagues? No, I definitely want to physics zone them. I don't want to give them the wrong impression and say, you know, I have other intentions. Right. But what if they're really cool and you want to hang out with them? You know, I don't really know what those social cues are. You know, how do you read the signs an alien is throwing you? Right. If you put a tentacle in a certain, you know, shape, who knows how they'll interpret that. Yeah, exactly. If you cross off something in my equation, what does that mean? (laughs) Usually that you're the professor and the other person (laughs) is the grad student. But welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. In which we think about all the crazy and hilarious stuff that's going on in our universe. All the weird stuff that's happening here on Earth. All the stuff that might be happening on an alien planet somewhere where they are also trying to figure out the universe. We squish it all up and we try to stuff it into your brain in just 40 short minutes. 
That's right, because it's a big universe and who knows what's out there or who is out there. And hopefully we are not alone in trying to figure out the secrets of the universe. Hopefully there's a whole community of physicists and mathematicians and scientists out there trying to puzzle over the nature of this beautiful and bonkers universe. And one day we could all get together and share notes and maybe even meet cute. Do you think it'd be collegial, Daniel? Like, wouldn't you feel competitive with the aliens? <laughs> like, wouldn't they put you out of a job if they come here with all the answers to particle physics? <laughs> I don't think I'd feel more competitive with the aliens than I do with my other physics colleagues already. That's what I mean. Like, you know, <laughs> only one person can get the intergalactic Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah, well, I already have tenure, so I don't have to worry about my job too much. <laughs> you don't care. <laughs> like, let the alien comes. Let them do my job for me so I can work less. Even less. <laughs> what if the aliens come and then they take over all the good jobs you're saying? So like human grad students can't become professors anymore? No, I mean, like they come with all the answers. So you, there's nothing for you mm. to do. <laughs> there's always going to be something to do. Even if they come with answers to our current questions, there are always more questions. You know that every answer just leads to more questions. Mm. Maybe they have tenure too and they are slacking off too. That's one thing to hope for. <laughs> But anyway, there is a lot of uh, space out there in the universe and it might be filled with other species and who knows what kinds of uh, wonders are out there. And so that's a big part of physics is to wonder about this and to think about what could be out there and for us to discover. That's right. And also to do some thinking in advance about how we might talk to those aliens if they did come and visit. Could we communicate with them mathematically? Would we be able to figure out their language? Would there be some really awkward moments when we don't know what to say or they say the wrong thing, it's actually useful to think these things through because then the day that aliens do arrive, we will have figured out maybe a few strategies. Yeah. And so some advanced thinkers in this area of science and research <laughs> are science fiction authors. Absolutely. Their job is to think of interesting possibilities for what could happen or what could be out there or what would happen if we ever meet or discover these things. That's right. Even though science fiction authors are not always living in our actual factual universe, they are on the cutting edge of thought because... Wait, wh where are they living, Daniel? <laughs> if not in our universe. Are you saying the authors are aliens too? <laughs> Interdimensional aliens? <laughs> They're living in a fictional universe, which amazingly is stored inside their brain, which is inside our universe. So that's sort of cool. Like our universe contains in it models of other universes inside people's brains. Mm, sounds like the next Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to get a credit for that one. Christopher called me up. But the cool thing is that that's exactly what physicists do, right? I have in my mind several possible universes that I'm wondering about. Is this one our universe? Is that one our universe? So it's a pretty important job to be creative and come up with other universes that might actually relate to reality, that might give us insight into how ours works. So we on the podcast are always champions of science fiction authors on the cutting edge of thought. Yeah, and so today on the program, we'll be tackling... science fiction universe of Lindsay Ellis. That's right. Lindsay Ellis is the author of a really fun book called Axiom's End, which explores a lot of these topics in some pretty interesting ways. Yeah, and this is part of our series of science fiction author interviews and discussions about their work. We have a bunch of them in the podcast archive, right, Daniel? That's right. We've talked to a huge number of really fun and creative authors who've been really generous and told us about how they created the universe of their novel. This isn't a literary podcast. We're digging into the physics of their universe. Is it plausible? How does it work? How do they put it together? And what can we 
learn about our universe from their created fictional universe. Yeah, it's a science literary podcast on occasion. <laughs> so if you're interested in discovering new authors or hearing interviews with well-known authors of science fiction, check out our archive. Do you think if you wrote a science fiction novel, you'd be up for being interrogated about the physics of it by a physicist? I get interrogated by physicists every week, <laughs> twice a week, actually. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that hard. <laughs> you'd be especially experienced. Yeah. Yeah, I have a special degree on that. <laughs> then you should write a science fiction novel. That sounds like something to add to your list. <laughs> you should write horror. <laughs> it's more like <laughs> horror or, you know, period drama. Your horror novel is called Being on a Podcast with a Physicist. <laughs> ah, scream. <laughs> That's right. Misery Part 2. But anyways, we're talking today about Lindsay Ellis's work and she's a pretty interesting author. I mean, she's pretty multifaceted and she does a lot of things online, right? Yeah, she has a pretty big presence online. She has a YouTube channel and she does literary criticism. And so this is the beginning of her career as an author. She's like cracking into the science fiction community. It's pretty cool to see that the community is open this way, that people can still come in with a new idea and a debut novel and make the bestseller list. Yeah, it's a pretty big splash. I mean, she made the new New York Times bestseller list in her first try. Yeah, exactly. 100% of her novels have been bestsellers. Yeah, that's a pretty good hit right there. But <laughs> congratulations to her. And today we're going to talk about her book, Axioms End, meaning like the end of axioms or like the, the end of an axiom. <laughs> it's the end of an axiom. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil exactly what the title means because you only find out about two thirds of the way through the book. But a lot of the book is about questioning your axioms, it's about questioning your thoughts about how the universe worked and also questioning your thoughts about how aliens operate and how to communicate with them. Mm, it's sort of like a, a paradigm shift. It's kind of what it's about. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, maybe step us through. What is the basic premise of the book? Well, in the universe that she created, it's like a slightly alternative history. It goes back to 2007. All the way back to 2007. I know, exactly. If you can cast your mind back before 2020, <laughs> your fuzzy memories of how the world used to work. It does feel like a different world, doesn't it? <laughs> well, she literally has a different world. And in her world... Aliens have arrived on Earth, but they arrived like decades ago, you know, in the 60s, and the government covered it up. So it's sort of like the Roswell scenario where there are aliens in Area 51, mm. but only the government knows about them. Wow. So in the 50s, they landed like in flying saucers or? So they landed decades ago and they sort of crash landed, but then the government sort of like swept it up and kept it under wraps mm. until more aliens arrive. So now here we are in 2007, more aliens are landing and the secret is getting out. They have like a Julian Assange like character that's trying to blow the whistle on the government and leak the fact that the government has been keeping aliens a secret for decades. And then it's all blown up when more aliens arrive. Wow. You know, I've always wondered why in all these science fiction movies and shows, they always sort of portray the government as wanting to cover this up. Do you know where that comes from? Like, what would be the rationale for government to cover it up? I don't think there is any rationale. I think it's 100% born of conspiracy theories. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense from an individual point of view. Like, why would an individual scientist or government worker not want to share this information. And it doesn't make sense from the sort of government policy point of view. Like, I never believe the argument that like people are going to go crazy if they find out. Like, you, you got to deal with it. There's plenty of bad news out there. You know, just let us know and we'll figure out a policy. So I never really made sense to me. I think it just comes from people who think the government is lying to us about everything because the government has lied to us about stuff before. Mm. Just a general sort of suspicion of government. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And also, if you want to believe that aliens exist, 
and the government's not telling us that they do, then the only way for you to believe that the government has aliens is to assume that they're lying. <laughs> right? Huh. Well, so anyways, in the book, the aliens landed a long time ago, and then they just started landing again. Mm -hmm. Now, does she explain why they came back? Yeah, she does. The aliens that have landed now are sort of coming after the ones that landed 40 years ago. But one of the really fascinating things about the aliens that landed 40 years ago is that they didn't die. It's not like they crash landed and we have corpses. Mm. The government has custody of living aliens. But the fascinating thing is that those aliens have been refusing to communicate. They've like ignored every effort to make contact or talk to them. Wow. Because we imprisoned them or they're just being shy or they're just giving us a cold shoulder? Well, that's a great question, right? And it goes to the heart of like, why are the aliens doing something? To answer that question, you have to understand like, what do the aliens want? Why are they here? What's important to them? And that's really the heart of the book is trying to make sense of could you ever understand what the aliens want and why they do things? Mm. Can you even do basic communication with the aliens? Could you develop a language to talk to them? And even if you had that, could you ever really understand them and empathize with them? Right, right. Because who knows under what conditions they evolved, right? They could have evolved under totally different conditions. And so our sort of way we see the world could be totally different than the way they see the world. Absolutely. It's very tempting to think about aliens in sort of Star Trekky way that they're like us, but just a tiny little bit different. So talking to aliens is sort of like talking to somebody from the other side of the world that eats stuff that feels weird to you, but you're capable of sort of extending and extrapolating from your experience to theirs. The idea here is like aliens will be pretty alien. And so it might even be that they're so puzzling that they just ignore you for 40 years for reasons of their own. Mm. I like that element of it. There's a realistic sense of frustration and difficulty in the same sense that like, remember that movie Arrival? Mm -hmm. Aliens show up. It's just sort of like, what's your deal? What are you doing here? It's hard to even know how to begin communicating with them. They're so weird. Right. But I guess I have questions about the practicality of it. Like, how do you keep aliens hidden somewhere? Do you have to like put them in a cage, a habitat? And how do you feed them? What do they eat? and poop. <laughs> yeah, right. So these aliens, they keep them under wraps and the aliens are actually like self-powered. So these aliens have pretty cool biological technology. They're actually post-biological. They're like part nervous system, but the rest of them is sort of like advanced cyborgs mm -hmm. and they come with some internal power source. So I guess they don't need to eat for decades. Mm. They have some sort of magical like nuclear something soars inside of them. Mm -hmm. And then they're they're like in a, a cage or a dome or how do they, how are they kept? Yeah, so the government keeps them basically in the equivalent of Area 51 and has been constantly trying to communicate with them. But they just sort of sit there ignoring the scientists mm. until the new aliens arrive and then everything changes. Ooh, what happens when the new aliens arrive? So the new aliens arrive and they meet the main character, the protagonist. And then they try to rescue the original aliens. They try to save the original aliens. So then the protagonist, the, the person that we get to know best as the character, actually ends up trying to serve as an interpreter between this new alien and the rest of humanity on this new alien's mission to rescue the original aliens from a third batch of aliens that are coming to take them out. Whoa. Maybe we should have given a spoiler alert. That sounds like a big part of the plot. So the, the new aliens can communicate and do communicate with the main character. 
they can and they have decided to. Mm. And so a lot of the book is about learning like, what's that like for the aliens? How to communicate with the aliens? Why haven't the original ones communicated? And it's really fun and fascinating. And if you've read the book, I would love to hang out and have coffee and talk to you about it. But I don't want to give too much away about the sort of intellectual ideas behind the book. Right, right. And so what do they look like? Are they humanoid? Do they look like a cube? What do the what do the alien bodies look like? <laughs> They're sort of humanoid. In my mind's eye, they look a little bit like the alien in the movie Alien. They have like a big, long head and really, really large eyes. But roughly humanoid, but they're not like, you know, a big gaseous cloud or like a gelatinous cube or anything too weird. Mm. So is that part of the conspiracy that the movie Alien actually came from? The real <laughs> aliens? <laughs> you just birthed that conspiracy theory right here today, man. Good job. All right. <laughs> Way to spread disinformation. I've done my duty for today. <laughs> so the whole character arc and the arc of the book is really about this character getting to know this one alien that's coming to rescue the others and learning also sort of the larger context of the galaxy. How many species are out there? How many intelligent species there are? This kind of stuff. So, you know, from the point of view of somebody who's really curious about whether this is true in reality, it's fascinating for this character at least to get some answers mm, oh i see the the new aliens that come and talk to our main character sort of give him the scoop on what's going on in the galaxy yeah a little bit and sort of grudgingly <laughs> what does that mean those aliens are not here to educate us and share you know their intellectual wealth they're here to save their brothers and sisters so mm. you know only when absolutely necessary do they give away a tidbit of information that we are desperate to learn i see the humans are like the annoying kid who keeps asking questions yes yes exactly how many exactly. of you are there and how do you achieve a faster than light travel that kind of thing exactly so does she paint a friendly universe out there or does she paint a sort of like a warring kind of hostile universe it's a complicated question. The picture she paints is that communication with aliens is complicated, is difficult, is maybe impossible and potentially dangerous because meeting these aliens and talking to them could begin a conflict between humans and those aliens. And so it's not necessarily seen as like a good thing to establish communication with these aliens. Mm. It's a tricky topic. I see. It's tricky because you might say the wrong thing and the next thing you know, you're in a star war. <laughs> That's right. You say, hey, didn't I see you guys in that movie? And then boom, humanity is eradicated. <laughs> the worst thing you can say to an alien. <laughs> Aren't you the ones based on that movie Alien by Ridley Scott? <gasps> How dare you? And that's why we don't send cartoonists to be ambassadors. <laughs> yeah, or, or anything. <laughs> just, just keep them at home in Area 51. Pencil and paper and that's it. All right, well, let's get into the, some of the signs that she talks about in her novel, Lindsay Ellis's Axiom's End. And then let's get to your interview with her. But first, let's take a quick break. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time off to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life to immerse myself in natural beauty and have a unique experience. But you don't have to leave the United States to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. People from Puerto Rico are called Boricuas, but it's not just a name. It's a spirit, a flavor, a rhythm that you can only find in one place on Earth. 
Puerto Rico. It's embodied by these proud, passionate people, and you'll feel it in every part of the island. When you bask in the warmth of the beaches, when you taste the love in the food, when you embrace the call of adventure, you'll find the Boricua spirit in yourself as well. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. You can forget where you came from and embrace where you are in Puerto Rico. Because your visit ends, but the stories last forever. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place, full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities. But it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. All right, we're talking about the science fiction universe of author Lindsay Ellis and her book, Axiom's End, which is about aliens coming to visit us and giving us a cold shoulder. <laughs> exactly. And it's about how to develop communication with aliens, you know, how you actually would get to talk to them and ask them questions and use them as a way to learn about the universe and whether that's at all possible. Mm. All right. So maybe step us through what are some of the interesting science bits that she uses or imagines or talks about in her book. So the main character in the book is actually a linguist who went to UC Irvine. No way. What? Uh, to get her degree. Totally. Yes, absolutely. Nice to see UCI like appear in culture somewhere. <laughs> That's crazy. Why? <laughs> it's I'm not I'm not saying anything against your university, but it does seem like an unlikely university to pick. Does she have roots in California or something? How did how did she arrive at that? Did you ask her? Yeah, she lives in Long Beach. And so I think she just wanted sort of like a nearby university and the story takes place in L.A. I also suspect she didn't want it to be too glamorous. And the character is actually the kind of student we get at UCI. You know, first in her family to go to college, not very wealthy. And so I think it actually puts UCI in a good light. You know, it offers an opportunity for lots of folks to get an education. 
Nice. So I guess maybe the main kind of science topic here is about communication with alien. And I guess she posits the question of whether it's even possible to talk to an alien. Like maybe they're so alien, we can't even have a, a common basis on which to talk or communicate. Yeah, she uses sort of linguistic knowledge of this main character to talk about how human knowledge is put together and trying to speculate about how an alien language might work and how you might sort of build the basic primitives you would need to learn to communicate with them. And so I give her kudos for like thinking it through. You know, it's not just like you start pointing at stuff and saying the words and then five minutes later, you're having a deep conversation about philosophy. She does take us on that tour and there's lots of, you know, things that are misunderstood and subtle cultural references that aren't included in words. You know, there's, there's a lot of that good stuff. But also she assumes that these aliens, the ones that arrived in her book, can have their language sort of cracked by this sort of linguistic analysis that it's even possible to communicate with them. Right, because I guess you have to assume, since they're a spacefaring civilization or species, that they mm -hmm. do have communication, at least between them. There, there must be some way, assuming they're a sort of separate, uh, you know, consciousness and mm -hmm. minds and, and things like that. It's not a hive mind or the Borg. They must have some way to communicate themselves. So, you know, there, there must be something there that we can maybe decode or, you know, figure out. I think it's a pretty good assumption that aliens will communicate with each other. But whether we could decode it and figure it out, I think that assumes a lot about the way alien brains work and the way they think and you know the conditions under which they evolved. I think if we want to be real about it. I think it would be really extraordinarily difficult. We'd be very, very lucky. I mean, there are still human languages that we have not decoded. Remember how difficult it was to decode like Egyptian hieroglyphics. If we didn't have the Rosetta Stone, we might not have ever figured it out. And so there's lots of difficulties there. Just because you have a speaker of that language doesn't mean you can decode it. Right. But, you know, I guess the Rosetta Stone was hard because we didn't have anyone who knew those languages to talk to. Mm -hmm. But do you think maybe, you know, if somebody was alive that you could maybe have a conversation and, and start to figure it out? I, I imagine if there is life out there in the universe, it must have some sort of commonalities to our life. What it means to be alive and not alive and also physics and math and things like that. Right. Wouldn't that give us some common basis to start with? Perhaps, but that's sort of the exciting thing about this question. We're hoping if we do meet alien life, it will surprise us that it will exist in ways we hadn't imagined were possible. It will communicate or think in ways that we never even thought of. That's the purpose of exploration, right? Is to go out and be surprised by reality, to see when it disagrees with your preconceptions. And so it's sort of easy to imagine, yeah, life could be sort of similar to us in these basic ways. We assume that these foundational things have to exist. But I'm hoping to be surprised. So I don't think it would make for a very fun book, though. You know, if aliens showed up and we just like couldn't <laughs> talk to them for a hundred years, like not, not a great story, you know. So I right. get as a, as a sort of literary device how she had to sort of assume aliens were similar enough for us to talk to them. Mm. But I think in the broader sense of our actual universe, it's much more likely to be much more difficult, if not impossible. Right. And I guess it doesn't help if they're giving you the silent treatment like they do in her book. <laughs> Yeah. And it's much easier if aliens come here, which I think is less likely, right, because of the distances involved. What if we get a message from aliens on another planet really, really far away? And then our communication is like takes 20 years to send a message. Imagine learning to speak a language across that kind of distance and time when you only get to like ask three questions and get three answers and then you're dead. And like, you know, the next generation of scientists have to take it up. Mm, yeah, that would be pretty slow. 
All right, well, let's talk about some of the other science bits here. So in her universe, there are aliens all over the galaxy. And how do they get around? So in her universe, she tried really hard to make realistic. So she tried to stick to the physics of our universe. In her universe, there is life all over the galaxy. But intelligent life is very, very rare. There's only a couple of species that are intelligent that have the capability to even eventually develop like spacefaring technology. And here I think she's trying to make a comment on this question about, you know, like how common is life? And how common is intelligent life? But these aliens don't have like faster than light travel. So they fly through the universe, you know, close to the speed of light on their awesome ships. But they're also limited in the same way we are by the vast distances between stars. Mm. So how do these uh, civilizations interact and, and stay cohesive? Yeah, so these civilizations, these aliens are not actually very broad. It's like there's one alien planet and there's another alien planet. And something that she talks about in the book a lot, which I thought was really interesting, is the possibility of like interstellar war. Mm. You know, would an alien species want to wipe out another one? Like if there were aliens found in a star 10 light years from here, which is very, very close cosmologically, why would they ever want to kill us, right? What does Earth have that they need? There's plenty of like platinum and iron and oxygen and water in Jupiter and in Neptune. They wouldn't need to come to Earth to kill us to take it unless they actually, you know, wanted us as slaves. There's no reason in my mind they would actually need to have a conflict with us. Mm, does, does she cover that in her book? Like what's the reason behind this war? Yeah, she does talk about that. And she takes this sense, essentially all species are born in conflict. And it's very similar to another book we talked about once, Max Berry's book, Providence, about discovering an alien species that's sort of weird and sort of feels a need to fight. The idea is that like when you grow up on a planet, there are limited resources. And so you sort of learn to see threats. If somebody's so far from you that you don't see them as your in-group, then they're in your out-group and that makes them a threat. So even if two communities, two aliens in different star systems could actually live independently and not bother each other. There's sort of this natural tendency to see each other as a threat and then start pulling triggers. Mm. People are jerks, basically. Yeah. <laughs> People are jerks. And I hope aliens aren't jerks, you know, but in her novel, they basically are. Mm. All right. So the aliens are there, they're at war and they have cyborg bodies. They're sort of like super advanced or they just kind of evolved into this kind of cyborg mixed technology existence? No, they are constructed, right? They build these bodies and they have really awesome capabilities. And I don't want to get too much into the detail because I don't want to spoil it. But it's this sort of post-biological system. And because of it, they can like live for hundreds of years and they can repair themselves. And you can do all sorts of cool engineering to these bodies that you could imagine. You could like replace your arm or get a new one or upgrade it or all this kind of stuff. Mm. All right. So it sounds like in general, the book stays pretty close to science and ideas about linguistics. It's not like they're inventing a new kind of energy or particle or misconstruing mm -hmm. any sort of dark matter notions or anything, right? No, there's no pim particle or anything crazy like that. You know, mm. the science of the book is pretty well done. And she's made some choices about how aliens might be, which to my mind, I think makes them a little more human than they're likely to be. But I also get why, for a literary point of view, she sort of needed to do that. Mm, cool. All right. And then so you got to talk to her. I did. She was really nice and spent like a half an hour talking to me about aliens and what they might be like and what it's like to write a science fiction book where one of the main characters is really, truly, deeply alien. So we had a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. Well, here is Daniel's interview with Lindsay Ellis, author of the book Axioms End. 
All right, so I'm very happy to welcome to our program, Lindsay Ellis, author of Axiom's End. Lindsay, why don't you introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? So I, I mostly, for the last 10 years or so, have been working in new media, online video, and, and to a lesser degree, podcasting. And like the whole time, I, I had been secretly plotting to be a science fiction author, but that only really came to fruition last year. Uh, Stickler really a long time, because getting published is really hard, especially in, in the sort of like weird nebulous world of commercial sci-fi. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I after doing YouTube for about 10 years, and I still do it, like it's still kind of my main bread and butter. I published my first novel last July and the second one in the series comes out in October and then we'll just take it from there. Well, congratulations. I'm glad to see that science fiction is open to newcomers and makes the rest of us aspiring science fiction authors have a little bit of hope. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> difficult. Yeah, the, like, I feel like I've noticed that a lot of like sort of the prestige novels lately, not mine, mm-hmm. um, but like the last year's, uh, all the big winners of the awards were all debut novels. So yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty opening to new blood. I think that, you know, science fiction lately has been a lot less reactionary than it has been historically. Well, that's great. So before we dig into the details of your book, we have a few questions we ask every science fiction author to sort of orient them in the space. Mm-hmm. So here's some questions about science fiction in general. First question is sort of philosophical. Do you think that Star Trek transporters kill you and then clone you on the other side or actually transport your atoms to your destination? They kill you. <laughs> no hesitation on that one, huh? Yeah, I mean, sorry. Science, it is what it is. <laughs> That's an easy one, guys. It's, I bet it's one of those things where it's like, just don't think about it, okay? It's fine. <laughs> so given that, would you use a teleporter? Would you use it to like get to go to the surface of Pluto or whatever? Uh, no, especially since it only works short range anyway. It's right, like, well, come right. on, guys. Like, I, I, I feel like I'd be like that doctor in the second season of The Next Generation that... The replacement doctor who was like, no, I won't do the thing. Like, yeah, it literally kills you. All right. Well, in that case, what technology in science fiction would you most like to see become reality? The one that cures like cancer and like Parkinson's. I would really like to not have Alzheimer's. You know, I think that's my biggie. It's like, I think for us, I assume you're like a a millennial is like, I think our generation is going to be one of the last generations that like doesn't really benefit from technology that can protect us from like Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's and stuff like that. Mm. So that kind of sucks. I feel like, you know, assuming civilization doesn't fall, which I, you know, I'm not convinced that it won't. I feel like in the future, there will be like really good preventative measures for certain diseases that we are just really commonplace now. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice to, you know, be of your, of a sound mind when you die, but like, like dementia runs really bad in my family. So that's something I think about a lot. Mm. Yeah, it'd be nice to live in a time when people look back and said, really, that still happened to people? That's crazy. Yeah. Last general question is, what's your personal answer to the Fermi paradox? Given the huge number of planets out there that seem to have Earth-like conditions, why isn't that we haven't seen aliens or been visited by aliens or observed aliens on another planet yet? I guess, honestly, my answer is basically the answer that I gave in the book, Mm -hmm. although the answer in the book comes with a pretty huge asterisk that comes in the second book. Basically, I think that intelligent life is the is the extreme rarity. I think also people don't really take into consideration how young the universe is and, you know, just the sheer number of stars that had to like go through life cycles in order to get to the complex elements that comprise our solar system now, you know, like Mm -hmm. a lot of stars had to go supernova for us to get things like, you know, platinum and 
and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> carbon, all sorts of fun things. So I, I think it is very likely considering that, you know, intelligent life only popped about on Earth as a, you know, result of a cavalcade of mass extinctions and also kind of close to the end of the Earth's life cycle. You know, we're about like 80% of the way through. And what are the odds that that would happen over and over, especially in a fairly young universe? Mm -hmm. You know, because I think we got like a few trillion years before heat death starts in earnest. So <laughs> like, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's a combination of the universe is still pretty young and intelligent life is the filter. Like it's hard to, it's hard to cross that threshold. I don't like, I don't, I don't honestly buy the whole like, you know, we're going to kill ourselves argument. And that's what, that's where all the other aliens are. Cause uh, we, we would have to work pretty damn hard to wipe ourselves into extinction. Well, I'm glad to hear you have faith in the survival of the species. I mean, I don't have faith in the survival of civilization. I'm just saying, if we, like, we're like cockroaches. It would be really hard to wipe us out altogether. All right. So that's a lot of fun. I have a lot more questions for our author. But first, let's take a quick break. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time off to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life to immerse myself in natural beauty and have a unique experience. But you don't have to leave the United States to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. People from Puerto Rico are called Boricuas, but it's not just a name. It's a spirit, a flavor, a rhythm that you can only find in one place on Earth. Puerto Rico. It's embodied by these proud, passionate people, and you'll feel it in every part of the island. When you bask in the warmth of the beaches, when you taste the love in the food, when you embrace the call of adventure, you'll find the Boricua spirit in yourself as well. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. You can forget where you came from and embrace where you are in Puerto Rico. Because your visit ends, but the stories last forever. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities. But it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. 
Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Okay, we're back and I'm talking to Lindsay Ellis, author of Axiom's End. Let's talk about your book, which I really enjoyed. Congratulations on it. Thank you. Your story really talks a lot about sort of species conflict and the difficulties and dangers of communication and contact between different species. So tell me what drew you to these themes? What made you decide to make this the focus of your book? Well, I think the thing about first contact fiction in general is it always is about some form of other, you know, capital O. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's it's always kind of dealing with a sort of anxiety slash curiosity about something that you yourself as a reader or as an author or as a culture might feel kind of disconnected from. Mm-hmm. And that's why like invasion fiction is really common. And you kind of have like H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds is a really good example of something that is both aware of the destruction that his culture is wreaking, but also really anxious about the idea of being invaded. You know, this coming on the heels of the Franco-Prussian War and right before World War One, But I think to me, because some people kind of like this sort of military science fiction thing where mm-hmm. it's just like good versus evil, the tension comes from how do we defeat the bad invading thing. I just find narratives that are about trying to f- understand something strange and foreign, more interesting. Like just as a reader, I think, you know, I think those those kind of narratives are more satisfying. I think, you know, that's why people really liked Arrival because like the entire book is not just about figuring out their language, but it's also figuring out what their deal is, you know, like what do they mm-hmm. want? And those kinds of narratives to me are just a lot more interesting than the, you know, invasion narratives. But I enjoy invasion narratives too. Like I, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter or my YouTube channel, mm-hmm. but like I tweet about Independence Day constantly. <laughs> Because Independence Day is one of my favorite movies. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's like I, 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 I love certain invasion narratives. I just don't think I'd ever write one or, well, at least not a conventional one. In the book, it seems like you're a little bit ambivalent about whether communication is something to aspire to, like we could understand these aliens or whether it just sort of brings on danger. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, in your universe, some of the folks see aliens as threats, you know, sort of despite the near infinite set of resources out there in the universe. So do you think that we pose like a threat to an alien civilization or are aliens only in danger if we see them as a threat? You know, why can't we just all share the vast amounts of platinum and water in the universe? You mean uh, hypothetically or in in the book? In, In reality, like in our universe. Well, I think that really depends on like the situation because like I see people making like these really kind of wild speculation like, well, if really aliens really showed up, this is definitely what would happen. And it's like, you don't know. (laughs) You don't know. You don't know that. So I I think people kind of get in their heads a little too much about what is logical whenever when when the reality Mm -hmm. is like if aliens showed up, they'd be coming with their own set of reasons Mm -hmm. and politics and culture and rationality and... And we have no idea what that would be. I think in general, the idea that aliens would come for our resources is kind of silly, unless that resource is specific to life on Earth. Right. Because obviously, like, elements are, you know, really common. Like, water is everywhere, you know, 
things that are common on Earth are common everywhere. You know, it's just like there, there are any number of reasons why they could show up and possibly be hostile or possibly, you know, be not hostile. And I think that that's sort of like why it's kind of hard to make real speculation of like, why can't we just get along? Is like, well, we don't know what their deal is. We don't know what their politics are. And we don't know what our politics would be when they showed up. You know, I think it's interesting to say like, well, what would have happened if they showed up like in 1960, Mm -hmm. like at the height, like the most dangerous height of the Cold War, as opposed to like 1995 when not a lot's going on, you know, and everyone's pretty chill. (laughs) And, you know, there's not any, you know, rise in fascism yet that we would see in the 2000s. So yeah, it's it's just like, it's it's a sort of conflation of scenarios. But I think the main thing as far as human nature goes is we are very fearful and we humans have a very deep-rooted, instinctive, in-group, out-group mentality. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, would be the hardest thing for us to overcome. Mm-hmm. So I hear that you're saying that these aliens are essentially, by definition, alien and maybe impossible to understand their motives and to communicate with them mm-hmm. in, in reality, like in our universe. Right. In the book, it feels to me like maybe you wrote it sort of as a bridge. You're like, yeah. I'm going to bring the aliens <laughs> to make them a little bit more understandable because true alienness is sort of hard to relate to. Yeah. Is that true? Is there a gap there between what you think is actually happening in our universe and what you wrote about in the book? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because that's sort of like a, a narrative function. Like, what is the story you want to write? Mm-hmm. And I think the thing about Arrival is the aliens aren't really characters. Like, they don't really have personalities. And like, I did want to have aliens with personalities and mm-hmm. like, you know, motivations and relationships and stuff like that. So it's like it had to kind of figure out where the line was to where it's like, you know, looks alien and feels alien, Mm -hmm. but is still understandable. And that's part of why the actual work of decoding human language happens before the narrative even starts. (laughs) Because like that just, I I didn't want to tell the story of how we learned the language. Like that just wasn't the book I wanted to write. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that like the understandableness of of the aliens, Ambersand in particular, was a narrative function, but it was also just kind of like the story I wanted to write. I wanted the narrative to be like center on the relationship between these two. Yeah, it's not that exciting a story if the aliens show up and we just never figure out how to communicate with them. It's just like a big shrug for a thousand years, right? (laughs) Yeah, or or it'll be like an Ender's Game scenario where it's like we fight and then they just kind of stop one day and everyone's like, well, they'll be back, you know? <laughs> and not actually know why they stopped fighting. So in your book, there's a lot of linguistic theory and discussion of the structure of the alien language. Do you think that in reality, linguists would be like on the front lines of real life no. alien contact? No? <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. I think the thing people tend to forget about linguistics is it is a very tuned to not just human syntax, but also the human mouth and sounds that we make Mm -hmm. and like a full half of linguistics is just about the sounds, the phonemes. Mm -hmm. But also at the same time, there's just so much about like language acquisition that we haven't figured out yet. And the thing is like, I think the easiest way, like there's a Chomskyan way to understand language acquisition, which was the one I ascribed to, or at least in 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 the context of the book, which is why in the book, human language is almost kind of described as algorithmic. And basically, if you kind of figure out the algorithm, you can decode any human language with enough context. I wish I had that algorithm. Yeah. 
basically the idea being if the human brain is the hardware, language is the software. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have that hardware, then the software is completely meaningless. And this, I think, would work in reverse too. I think, you know, I'm not saying linguists would be completely useless, but I think like the study (laughs) of human linguistics probably is not going to apply to a hypothetical alien language. I think that the most useful thing in that context would probably be like, you know, pattern recognition software, that sort of thing. Because, you know, it's like if if you look at people trying to figure out dolphin language, they're not human linguists, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) So that that is why I think linguists wouldn't be terribly useful in this scenario. Isn't any human attempt to understand the alien language going to be constrained in the same way? Like Mm -hmm. we could argue that mathematics is universal, but we don't actually know that. It could just be like a product of the way that our hardware works. It makes really no sense to alien mathematicians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's hard to say because it's just like you're you're dealing with like incredible speculatives with also fundamentally like a line of thinking that you yourself are not capable of, which was kind of a weird thing with me. Because it's one thing like where it's a book and you have to describe the sounds being made. You don't have like the fun luxury of like, you know, a sound department making up sounds, but also like the, you know, the alien language and how it operates as opposed to human language. Like there would be overlaps, like it's a spoken language, like so it's not like through colors or smells or whatever. So it's like an oral spoken language, you know, and so therefore it uses phonemes, it uses sounds, but like the similarities kind of end there. Like they don't really have words. They don't, it's, it's more like a sort of cluster of phonemes that create a lump of meaning and, you know, describing that in a way that you understand what it is, but at the same time, you can't speak it and you can't Mm -hmm. think it Mm because you don't, you know, you're a human brain that understands human language. Mm -hmm. So then thinking about the bodies of the aliens, I thought there were a lot of really cool ideas in your story about how a species might like move beyond their biological origins. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's the future of humanity? Do you want to have a artificial body in the future? Oh man, that w- that's one I don't like to think about because it's going to be class-based, you know, it's going to be, you know, speaking of H.G. Wells, you know, in the time machine, when the time traveler goes into the future, mm-hmm. he th- he's like, oh, weird, two different species. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out like one of them is the rich people and right. one of them are the underclass. So I think that's sort of the thing that scares me a little bit about like genetic engineering and transhumanism is like, oh, good. <laughs> Another way we can really put into sharp relief the class divide. So it's sort of one of those things that I do kind of think, I think it's inevitable, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's inevitable in a good way. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, down here in Orange County, I see a lot of folks with Botox faces and I wonder if I really am the same species as some of the people around here anyway. (laughs) Next question I want to ask you is about the political question that you raised earlier about how we would respond. Mm -hmm. In your book, there's a lot of information about the aliens that's kept secret by the government. This is a, a key plot device you use. Do you think that's happening now that the government like has secret information about aliens or do you think it would happen if aliens did visit? Uh, no. <laughs> no and no. <laughs> <laughs> I think because I kind of put like why I think they couldn't keep this a secret in the book. Mm-hmm. Like uh, like Nils, who's one of like sort of this Julian Assange character, has a little polemic somewhere like halfway through the book where he talks about information sharing between agencies after 9-11 mm-hmm. made keeping a secret of this magnitude that involved this many people of like essentially impossible. Mm-hmm. But I think like whenever you see like the stuff that like the Pentagon released lately, people are like, oh, they 
proved it's aliens and it's like, no, you do understand that an unidentified flying object just means it's a flying object that, that's unidentified. Like they don't know what it is. Right. <laughs> so right. I, I, I'm very leery of that conspiratorial thinking where it's like you don't use evidence to come to a conclusion. You have a conclusion and then use the thing as evidence mm-hmm. and ignore anything else to the uh, contrary. So I, I think it's it, it depends. I think like in this case, they genuinely don't know what it is. So of course they kept it secret. And I think historically that would have been the case. But I think if they knew something definite, like, no, they you can't keep that a secret. That's way too big. And it would cause a scandal like that because that's what happens in the book is like right. if they like were deliberately keeping this thing a secret for such a long time, it would just cause such a massive scandal when it inevitably gets out. Mm-hmm. So that that's my take on the whole government conspiracy thing. <laughs> well, I hope that's true. So then last question I have for you is about sort of constructing your universe when you went out to write this novel. Mm -hmm. How important was it for you that the science of your universe be sort of the same as the science of our universe, that everything that happens there, you know, limitations on fast and light travel, et cetera, be the same as the ones in our universe? Oh, I guess the funny thing is like, I I wanted to write something that wasn't technically in contradiction Mm -hmm. to certain theories, I guess, is the thing. Because as I'm sure you know, you know, we haven't figured out the theory of everything yet. And there's just like a lot we don't know about like the physics of the universe. And so I guess my thing was, I actually, I had a nuclear physicist. He's a German guy named Wolfgang and he lives in Frankfurt or he did whenever I talked to him about this. I was thinking like, you know, whenever I figured out like, well, what are the laws of physics of this universe? Mm -hmm. Do I pick one of the many potential theory of everything theories or do I just make one up? And uh, (laughs) I asked him, I was like, what do you think is the right one? And he's like, I like quantum loop gravity. I'm like, okay, (laughs) well, when do you think ballpark? When do you think we're going to nail it down? And he's like, I don't know, 200, 300 years. I'm like, cool. So it doesn't matter. (laughs) So so basically I, I did, I went with a version of string theory. And so I tried to keep everything under the umbrella of things that would be theoretically possible. Mm -hmm. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. If this version of string theory is true, which we're probably not going to figure out in our lifetimes anyway. (laughs) And fortunately, there are 10 to the 500 string theories, which could be true. Yeah, exactly. We have a lot of flexibility. (laughs) Yeah. And the funny thing is, like, since it's aliens, I don't need to say which one (laughs) because they have a different name for it. See? (laughs) And we we don't know. So, yeah, it was something that I thought a lot about, but also like I kept intentionally vague mm-hmm. because, you know, it's like they wouldn't have the same terms for things that we do. So like some things would line up like, you know, I don't know, gravity or light speed or stuff like that. But then other things, you know, they would have different terminology for it, like, you know, dimensions or strings or stuff like that. Yeah, I guess it was just like I, I wanted to keep it vague, but also like technically theoretically possible, you know, like with idea of like telekinesis and stuff like that. And, you know, this basically just being a a sophisticated form of of manipulating electromagnetic fields and, you know, condensing electrons and stuff like that. You're like, well, okay, sure. You know, that would take a lot of energy. So they just have a lot of energy. Boom, done. (laughs) Like, (laughs) so yeah. Awesome. Well, I thought that was really fun. And I was really appreciative that you sort of picked a set of rules and stuck to them. To me, that's a critical element of science fiction. 
Oh, thank you. I was thinking about it for a long time. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks very much for coming on and telling us all about your book. Why don't you tell our listeners about upcoming projects or things you have coming out soon? Right. Well, sequel to Exeem's In comes out in October. It is done. So it's in production, as they call it, at the publisher. And that one, I think, will probably be more relevant to the discussion of this podcast because it delves a lot more into like the science of the universe and mm. uh, like actually address is the Fermi paradox and the origin of life and stuff like that. Again, like just it's, it's a fictitious universe, but mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's fun to play with hypotheticals based on like, well, here is what we know. So how could it play out in other scenarios? And so that comes out in October. And other than that, I'm still uh, doing long form stuff on YouTube that just comes out once every couple months or so because videos are really, really long. <laughs> I've got one coming out in a couple of weeks about J.K. Rowling again. So yeah. Great. Well, looking forward to the sequel to your book. I'll definitely pick it up. Thank you. And thanks again for joining us and talking to us about all these crazy ideas. Well, thanks a lot for having me and I uh, hope you guys have a good rest of your plague. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That was a pretty cool chat. I love her thoughts about alienness and how she had to make the aliens alien. <laughs> but you also kind of <laughs> want to make them relatable so that you as a reader can identify with them. Yeah, it's a tricky line to balance. I totally respect that. And I like that she separated sort of the ideas she put into her novel, which is, you know, important for telling a fun story with her ideas about like how the universe actually works. So that's pretty cool. Oh, it sounds like she was a little conflicted, maybe like she thinks the universe might work this way. But mm -hmm. for the writing of the novel, she had to portray it a certain way. Yeah, this is not like a scientific paper, right? This is not like her idea for how she thinks the universe actually is. This is like, hey, here'd be a cool universe in which I could tell a fun story that would be enjoyable to read, you know, which is not the kind of constraint I usually have in my science papers, you know. <laughs> but you do write science fiction, Daniel. Did this spur you to write any science fiction stories or feature any more professors from UC Irvine? <laughs> I'd love to see more of UCI appearing in culture somewhere. And I think it's inspirational that somebody had a cool idea and tried writing and then was successful and was able to break into the industry. I always think it's a healthy community when a novice can break in and do a good enough job that they could actually be successful. So that's awesome to hear. And I think that everybody out there who's aspiring to write a science fiction novel is encouraged by it. Cool. Well, if you are interested, please check out Lindsay Ellis' book, Axiom's End. You can, I'm sure, find it everywhere. It was a New York Times bestseller. And get to see her thoughts and her ideas and her stories about aliens coming to visit us and ignoring us. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And she has a sequel coming out later this year, which I'm confident will also be fun. All right. Well, please check out her work. And we hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for listening, and remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits... LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.